voice of minnesota it's the thursday edition of fyi politics with brett johnson so before we get into the content of the show today i have some great interviews lined up i want to bring up something that i wasn't able to get to on my show yesterday and that's just an insane statistic that was just released by the americans for tax fairness as well as the institute for policy studies talking about the amount of wealth billionaires have gained since the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, billionaires have actually gained a ton of wealth from the pandemic. In fact, if you look at the 16 billionaires that currently exist in the United States, as of March 18th, the beginning of the pandemic, they had a combined total wealth of a little over $3 trillion. Guess what that number is right now? Closer to to $4 trillion. That means somehow they have, during the pandemic, increased their wealth by over 30%. Just an insane statistic. So I thought I'd throw that stat out there for you. All right, let's get into my first interview for today as we're going to be doing our weekly visit with Patrick Kulikan of the Minnesota Reformer talking about some of the big news in Minnesota politics. Let's get to that right now. Now for our usual weekly visit with Patrick Kulikan of the Minnesota Reformer. He's their editor-in-chief, as the Minnesota Reformer does a great job of covering what's happening with the Minnesota political scene, as we'll be talking about a few of the major stories that have been in the news this week. So, Patrick, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Good to be here, as always. Absolutely. So want to start with something that you wrote about in the Minnesota Reformer, and that has to do with, of course, this very well-known legal case in Minnesota, where back in 2002, 11-year-old Taisha Edwards was shot and killed as she was doing homework at her home. And later on, Mayan Burrell was convicted of the murder when he was just 16 years old. But as the issue resurfaced during the 2020 presidential election with Amy Klobuchar touting that conviction during her campaign, it led new scrutiny to the case of Mayan Burrell and questions about whether he was really guilty. Well, an update on that now. The Center for Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University's Pritzker School of Law, along with the Innocence Project, is recommending Mayan Burrell be released. So, Patrick, as you had a chance to look at their report, what were they saying in terms of the reasoning as to why Burrell should be released? So they they looked at two different questions. One was the conviction itself and whether or not he was uh, actually guilty. And the second one was on the incarceration and whether or not uh, he should still be incarcerated. What they said was they were unable to make a final determination about it, about the trial itself and uh, the conviction uh, because they don't have enough uh, documents from the Hennepin County attorney's office. Um, they did not, put the blame on Mike Freeman, the, the head of the county attorney. They said, given the circumstances with the pandemic and so forth, it's understandable. Um, they did recommend that uh, Keith Ellison, the attorney general, um, reopen the case and reinvestigate it. Um, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But, but the second thing that they did was they, they said, does his being incarcerated serve any more any purpose at this point? And they said, no. Um because they looked at the, the the reasons of why we incarcerate someone, and they said there's just no, he's not a, a threat to anyone's safety, uh, the family, um, 
of the victim, um, uh, do not believe he should be incarcerated. So uh, th- that was their determination on incarceration. They, they did raise serious concerns uh, about the conviction uh, with, with the evidence that they did have. Um, and that was mostly that uh, the prosecutors crafted uh, very good deals for jailhouse informants who seemed to have been from some sort of rival gang. And um, there seemed to be something like uh, a setup. And meanwhile, there were uh, neutral uh, witnesses who had no stake in the case who say that uh, Burrell was not there um, at at the time of the incident. Um, And they point the finger at other people and so forth. So it seems like the prosecutors... Um, on the one hand, they're making, they're cutting very good deals to reduce sentences of jailhouse informants. On the other hand, they're ignoring the testimony of disinterested uh, witnesses um, who, who do not believe that Burrell uh, um, was involved. So those are the problems uh, that, that they, uh, they saw with the conviction. And uh, it's, it's important uh, timing of this report because next week, uh, Burrell's case will go before the pardon board. Uh, which traditionally is made up of uh, the governor, the, the attorney general, and the Supreme Court, uh, uh, the chief justice of the Supreme Court. Um, I, I'm not sure. I understand that she may have to recuse because um, I think because of her time on the court, she may have, um, that that case may have come before her at some point. Or there may have been an appeal. Um, but in any case, next week, pardon board, um, there's a real shot, I think, that he could... Um, he could be released from incarceration, and then um, it's all. And then it's possible that uh, as they reinvestigate, um, he may actually be uh, exonerated. So, what's been the response so far uh, from a couple of figures that I think are going to be key in this? That would, of course, be Amy Klobuchar, who was the Hennepin County Attorney at the time, and even our current Attorney General Keith Ellison. What's been their responses so far as to what's been happening with the latest developments? Um, I haven't heard uh, from either um, uh, Ellison maybe uh, keeping quiet because of the pardon board um, where, you know, because he's essentially sitting in judgment of the case. Um, I can uh, check here and see if Ellison has said anything. Um, No, I don't believe so. Um, So, uh, but Klobuchar is another one. I've not heard from her. Um, her interests in this case are, are far different, uh, I think, than Ellison's. She was she prosecuted the case. She didn't prosecute the case directly, but she was the county attorney at the time. And uh, that case was important to her political career. She used it in uh, Senate races. Um, the mom of the victim um, appeared in political advertising. And... So the, the Burrell case was a real problem for her during her presidential run earlier this year. I can't believe that was this year. Uh, <laughs> um, the Associated Press came out with an investigation saying there's a lot of problems with this, with this prosecution. And, um, you know, that really hurt her, um, I think, with um, black supporters uh, here at home um, and certainly in, in key states like um like uh, South Carolina, uh, that was really always going to be a challenge for her. The presidential campaign was uh, getting black support, which is so important in the in the Democratic uh, presidential campaign. 
so this case definitely hurt her, and I, I don't really see how it helps her. Um, I, I don't uh, know specifically if she's in the running for Attorney General of the United States or not, but this, this case is definitely not, not going to help that cause. Yeah, and I was thinking here, that's got to shoot down any sort of chance she even had of becoming the Attorney General. I think the odds were pretty much stacked against her for other reasons, even besides that, with, of course, Democrats uh, having a very uh, narrow, or there being a very narrow gap in the Senate right now between Republicans and Democrats. But yeah, you factor that in, along with the fact that, uh, well, she had a controversial role in this case. Yeah, there's probably no chance at this point that she's going to become Joe Biden's Attorney General. Yeah, I think I think you're right about that. Um, and you're right that the odds are stacked against her uh, probably anyway. But this case, uh, especially given, um, especially on the Democratic side, there's, there's so much uh, consternation about the role of police and criminal justice system and, and uh, systemic racism in the, in the criminal justice system. And so um, to, to have a, a case like this uh, in which uh, really this... <laughs> This guy was not given the benefit of the doubt. It was um, there were a lot of problems in that prosecution, apparently, um, and then and then to make her the chief law enforcement officer of the United States, it seems certainly problematic. Speaking with Patrick Kulikan, he is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer, great resource to follow what's happening with Minnesota politics, website minnesotareformer.com. So another big story from earlier this week would be, well, Secretary of State Steve Simon appearing before the Minnesota Senate as they were investigating potential election fraud that would be in the Republican-controlled state Senate. And as you write about, and I certainly agree with your assertion being I've met Steve Simon many times in the past, he's one of the more friendly politicians you'll ever run into, but he was pretty forceful during these Senate hearings on saying that he wants no part of pushing some of these baseless conspiracy theories that are being touted by Minnesota Senate Republicans. Right. They, uh, uh, he had an email exchange, or excuse me, a letter exchange uh, with uh, Senator, uh, State Senator Mary Kiffmeyer, the former Secretary of State, uh, she's uh, long been a, a believer in voter ID, um, even though the voters rejected that uh, notion in 2012 uh, at the ballot. Uh, she's long had ideas that uh, she essentially that seems to think that um, that the only way Democrats win races is through fraud, even though there's no evidence of it. She sent him uh, a letter with a bunch of questions uh a lot of, and you know, getting into uh, some of the loony stuff around this uh, vote, this uh, vote tabulation company, Dominion. Um, do I have that right? Is that what it's called? I think yeah, so. yeah, it's Dominion. Um, yeah, with the and you know, there's this wild theories about Hugo Chavez and all this nonsense. I never heard the Hugo and, Chavez one in there. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so. He wrote a pointed reply back, which we I think we talked about it last right. week. And now he appears before her committee, and he really just laid into her. And and apparently he spent thirty minutes off the bed. He spoke for thirty minutes, is what our reporter uh, Ricardo Lopez told me. Um, you know, pretty unusual for a guy to be testifying before a legislative committee and to open up with a thirty-minute statement. But uh, I think he was really just knocking them down. Um, you know, point by point, and and uh, good for him because this is just nonsense. I mean, I, and I saw some. Uh, there was a there's a poll 
Um, and I think this has been this is there's quite a quite a bit of data on this now, if we believe polls anymore. But I think this is probably relatively accurate. Where really a majority of Republicans don't think the the election results are uh, accurate, and and that's because of people like Mary Kiffmeyer throwing uh, sowing doubt in the results, even though they have no evidence of any irregularities or uh, anything but minor irregularities. And um, it's uh, it's eroding people's trust and faith in the democratic system, and and democratic systems rely on trust and faith to a large degree. So uh, I'm happy that Simon, who's just he's not a guy who's a, he's not an attack dog. That's just not his that's not his deal. Um, but good for him for being tough. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he's one of the more friendly politicians. Will always give you the time of day. But yeah, it's <laughs> he very forcefully shot that down yesterday. And we just have even besides Mary Kiffmeyer, we had other Republicans that are just grasping for straws on this. I mean, one exchange that I think Ricardo was uh, reporting on in the Minnesota Reformer was how Jeff Howe, who's uh, another Republican state senator, asked Steve Simon whether he would support a forensic audit of the election. And when he uh, Steve Simon asked him, well, what exactly what a forensic audit would be? Well, Howe had no answer. So, I mean, it's just a case where they really are just kind of grasping for straws in this situation without any real plan in terms of what a forensic audit would look like or any evidence behind these allegations. It's uh, glad I didn't watch it. It just would have been very, very frustrating to report. I'm guessing. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's interesting because you know, the usual path of, of an election is the loser concedes, then there's uh, some finger pointing about, you know, what caused the loss. And then the loser goes away and everybody says, boy, I don't want anything. You know, you, the loser in that party says, I don't, the, the, excuse me, the, 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 that guy's party, that woman's party, political party says, oh, we don't want any part of him anymore. You know, like John Kerry or, you know, um, uh, et cetera, or, or Mitt Romney on the other side. Um, but in this case, uh, Trump has managed to hold his grip on the party. And so it's like the only way you can prove your loyalty to the Republican Party now is to continue to make this uh, asinine case, this loony case that, that the election was stolen. And so these politicians are just following the lead um, and they feel like they need to show this loyalty to Trump in order to keep the, the base voters. Uh, otherwise, they'll be branded as disloyal. It's really something to watch. I love that you pointed this out, too, that back in 2019, if she was so concerned about election security, that would be Mary Kiffmeyer, why did she block a bill that would have provided us elect additional election security funding? So that's uh, another rich aspect ahead of this whole story, was that she held up funding that would have helped with some of this election security that she is supposedly so concerned about. Right. It seems like it was a long time ago now, but we are concerned about uh, Russian interference in the election and uh, with our election systems. And there was federal money on the table and she was blocking it. Uh, she made this just asinine statement that uh, this was very nonchalant about the risks of election hacking, even though we knew the Russians tried to get into um, state election systems in 2016. And her comment was something to the effect that, well, you know, I get hacked, you get hacked, you know, everybody's always getting hacked. It's not that big a deal. Oh, yes, um, right. You know, 
And now all of a sudden she's um, very, very concerned about the uh, security of these uh, of election systems and, 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 and is uh, asking these really loaded questions that uh, imply that uh, obviously there's no way a Democrat could be elected without uh, irregularities and fraud. Final topic for you here, Patrick. So our state, Minnesota, is expected to receive a little over 180,000 doses of COVID-19 vaccines over the next month. And Governor Tim Walz has said they'll primarily be targeted towards health care workers and the state's most vulnerable residents. So what's been the Republican response so far to this distribution plan from Governor Tim Walz with these COVID vaccines? Uh, well, pretty amusing i mean especially uh from um senate majority leader paul gazelka who's another one of our favorite topics on your show uh he came out friday and said well lawmakers and uh staff capital staff should cut the line and be given (laughs) vaccine because it's so important that we meet in person and um which, uh, you know, you can imagine how that went over politically. I mean, you, you, you never want to claim special I'm privileges. To, I'm trying to imagine the response if a DFLer had said that. That would have been front page yeah. story all week and every news publication in the cities. <laughs> it was quite something uh, for him to say. It still kicked up quite a bit, it does. Um, and, and remember that he 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 and his, his Republican, fellow Republicans in the Senate, Senate Republican caucus, they, they had a party uh, the night after the election. It was turned out to be a super spreader event. He got COVID. Then he got in an airplane with a Florida. Uh, I mean, a- after the recklessness of their behavior, then to turn around and say, well, <laughs> lawmakers and staff should cut the line. Um, it was just very funny on its face. <laughs> So then on Monday, uh, yesterday, sorry, they, they had this joint press conference, and the idea was to sort of present a unified front with lawmakers of both parties and the governor to say, hey, uh, the vaccine is safe, you know, and, and you should take it. And, and somebody in the press corps asked, well, who here is going to take the vaccine? And everybody raised their hand because Elka didn't. <laughs> and I think maybe he was, Concerned about see, seeming over, like again, he was he was trying to walk back the thing where he was going to be first in line for the vaccine, and he said, "Well, I've already had it, so I don't have to worry as much." And there was a, some kind of back and forth. I didn't watch it; I only just heard about it. But um, the guy doesn't always have the sharpest political instincts, um, and um, so it. it it's been quite a little episode. Um, hopefully it's all been cleared up that uh, we're going to get this uh, vaccine to healthcare workers uh, first and the most vulnerable and people in long-term care facilities and then maybe teachers. And somewhere down the list is the, the Minnesota legislature, which as far as I'm concerned, can work remotely for a while. I, I think they can too, yeah. They don't need to be going to the uh, front of the line as Gazelka originally proposed. And, and really, in all seriousness about this, what kind of has me concerned about this too is that 
there are more than a few Republicans in the Minnesota State Legislature that are part of that anti-vaccine movement. So I'm trying to picture this happening in 2021 where we could get more disinformation from certain members of the legislature around vaccines, being that, well, there are more than a few that do have a history with the anti-vax movement. Yeah, we had a story about this in the early days of the reformer, and I think February maybe, uh, a number of Republicans who are, they call it, you know, informed consent, or they, they have various euphemisms for it, um, but they're, they're putting misinformation out there about the safety of vaccines, and uh, Jim Abler's already started to do it with the COVID vaccine. Um, he's a senator uh, from Anoka uh, and a chiropractor. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, that is a real risk. Um, and I think you're going to read about that a little bit in the Reformer in the next uh, few days. So be on the lookout for that. Yeah, absolutely. Keep an eye on out that if you're listening right now, minnesotareformer.com for that story and a whole lot more to get the latest on what's happening with Minnesota politics. Hey, Patrick, as always, really appreciate the time today joining me on the show. Thank you. Bye now. And stick around. We'll come on back and have more on FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. You're back on FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. Well, since Donald Trump came to office, lots of people have tried to pinpoint what was the moment historically that led to the rise of Donald Trump. And one of the people that I think we can make an argument for what led to the rise of Donald Trump is Newt Gingrich, of all people. Yeah, you might remember him as the former Republican speaker back during the Clinton era of the 90s. There's a lot of parallels between the rise of Newt Gingrich and the current rise of Donald Trump. And someone who's written about that in a new book he's just released is Julian Zelizer. He is a professor of political history at Princeton University, and he is the author of the new book, Burning the House Down, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of the New Republican Party. Hey, Julian, how are you doing today? Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Yeah, glad to join. Glad to have you join me on the show today, as I found this book really fascinating to read about how Newt is kind of a precursor to Donald Trump, and putting aside his political beliefs kind of early in his life, when you look at the early years of Newt Gingrich, he's a guy who really loved challenging authority and establishment, the establishment and kind of conventional wisdom, which certainly does set the stage for later in life. I mean, if you look at his early life, this was a guy who as a kid tried to get a zoo built in his town, then dating his own high school teacher, running for college president as a first-year faculty member, and then, of course, running for Congress as a Democrat and or as a Republican in a very Democratic Georgia district. So overall, yeah, this was certainly a guy who just loved challenges and kind of challenging the conventional wisdom. I think that's right. Uh, personally, that very much describes his life. He was also someone who was never really rooted anywhere. His family was from outside Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, uh, but he moved around a lot. His stepfather was in the military, so he was an army brat and lived in different parts of Europe before they settled uh, back in Georgia. So personally, he never really was very rooted. And it kind of converges in the 1970s where this guy who doesn't like to listen to rules, who is willing to take on the person who's in charge, whether it's the uh, president of a university 
or his stepfather who didn't want him to date uh, his high school math teacher. It converges with his vision for Republican politics in the 1970s and 80s, where in his mind, the establishment are Democrats in Congress, and that's who he decides to take on. And that's very much where Newt Gingrich came from. Yeah, let's talk about some of his early congressional campaigns in the 1970s, because this is something I really wasn't aware of, is that back in the 70s, he wasn't the conservative that we know have know of him as today. He wasn't necessarily railing against rail welfare or pushing the Christian conservatism that he kind of became famous for in the 90s. He was more just kind of the so-called change candidate and trying to get rid of the establishment in Washington, D.C. Yeah, his campaigns were really interesting in the 70s. And in fact, I think you could almost make the argument that he was the more progressive candidate of his opponent, Jack Flint, who was the incumbent Democratic congressman back in the 70s. Right. So that, that that's right. Gingrich saw himself uh, until the second part of the 70s, more of a Nelson Rockefeller Republican, which means uh, uh, the wing of the party that was much more moderate uh, than what it would become in the 1980s. It's only after his first run for Congress in 74 against the incumbent, who was one of these old line Southern Democrats, not very uh, progressive at all. In fact, regressive on racial issues. Uh, it's only in 1975, after Gingrich loses, that he starts to shift to the right and he meets people associated with the conservative movement. Uh, but even in 1978, when he runs finally for an open seat in Georgia, he faces someone named Virginia Shepard. And she's in many ways more centrist than him. Uh, so he needs to find ways to prove his conservative bona fides. And uh, it, it's a challenge. So it's really after he comes to Washington in 1980, 79 and 80, that he associates himself completely with the new Republican revolution, the new Reagan revolution sweeping through the city. And I kind of want you to set the stage for when Newt Gingrich got involved in politics, especially in the 60s and 70s, because we're talking about an era where Democrats completely dominated the House of Representatives. I mean, the Democrats had had the majority since the early 1950s and really without any sort of challenge from the Republicans, being that the Democrats had a coalition kind of put together of liberal northern Democrats plus southern Dixie Democrats. And then all of a sudden here comes Newt Gingrich with this big idea saying he knows how he can take the GOP to the majority finally after so many years. And he kind of made that his life goal. And I think we just do do need to kind of set the stage because back in this era of the 70s and 80s, it was absolutely crazy to think of this idea that the Republicans some, could somehow regain a majority in the House of Representatives. That's exactly right. And uh, I mean, the first context is the 70s is just a era in the United States where there's a lot of anger and distrust about our government institutions as a result, both of Vietnam and Watergate. So that's hanging in the air. And then layered on that is the fact that Democrats had controlled Congress since 1954. And that, you know, uh, Gingrich arrives to Washington in 1979. And then the next year, Ronald Reagan's elected president. So in his mind, he's uh, sitting there saying, here's a Congress, a, a House of Representatives. that's not going to pass anything that Reagan wants. Expectations are high that Reagan is going to undertake a revolution in politics. And he had this sense of urgency 
about Republicans finally retaking control. In his mind, the senior Republicans were basically willing to live as a permanent minority in Congress. And this is what drives him. And this is what leads him to say, we literally need to do anything to take back control. And he was willing uh, to go to a, a sort of smash mouth partisanship, lowball politics that many senior Republicans initially were scared of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to hammer this point to home again, I mean, when you're talking about the 1970s and the 1980s, saying that the Republicans could have a majority in Congress would be as crazy as today saying like, oh, well, we're going to make the Green Party the majority in the House of Representatives. It was almost just like a foreign concept back then with (laughs) how much Democrats kind of dominated the House. So, yeah, when you get Newt Gingrich coming along saying, I have a plan to make the Republicans the majority. I mean, it certainly did seduce a lot of his colleagues, even though they didn't necessarily personally like him. I mean, they they certainly like some of his ideas, but personally, he was kind of an abrasive guy, as you were talking about. And in a way, do you think some of his colleagues were kind of almost afraid of him in sort of like that house of cards kind of way? Oh, very much. And, and that's a perfect comparison. Many... Most Democrats and certainly many of the senior Republicans saw him really as a Joe McCarthy figure in the early 1980s, someone uh, who wasn't simply scary, but who was doing things they understood would make governing very difficult. He was unleashing the kind of rhetorical assaults on members of Congress in both parties who he disliked, which are very hard to take back and create just a toxic atmosphere, questioning their patriotism, questioning their basic values. And he was taking uh, procedures that weren't meant to be used in partisan politics uh, and and making them ordinary tools of of warfare. So um, they weren't just scared of him. They were worried and concerned about what this was going to do. But because of what we just discussed, their desperation to finally have power, part of what happens in the 80s before he's speaker is a lot of the leaders start to say, okay, we'll live with that and we'll bring him into the leadership. And ultimately, they thought they could control what he was doing. Um, but it was it was very tempting to them, ultimately, to absorb some of what this person was doing. Fast forwarding towards the late 1980s, you do devote a big chunk of the book to the downfall of the former Democratic speaker at that time, Jim Wright, who, of course, Newt Gingrich was instrumental in orchestrating the downfall of Speaker Wright. And his downfall was not necessarily that of the good fallen soldier. I mean, for sure, Jim Wright was no Boy Scout by any means. And he was a big change at the time from the former speaker, Democrat Tip O'Neill, even though Wright used to kind of be a moderate guy, as I was reading through, he was a little bit more cutthroat than the Tip O'Neill type, where it was Wright who was more about making sure that we keep the Republicans in their place. And in a way, he kind of made the perfect foil to Newt Gingrich, really being kind of the anti-Newt Gingrich in the sense that he's also a little bit more abrasive than what Tip O'Neill was. And Gingrich really saw him kind of as an opportunity to really kind of drive that wedge between the Republicans and Democrats at that point. That's right. I mean, the the thing about writing history is you don't always have heroes and the characters are often uh, complex and they're not always particularly appealing. And Speaker Jim Wright takes over in 1987 and 
he has many vulnerabilities. One is, yes, as majority leader, he was very tough with Republicans in terms of trying to limit what they could do. He was even tougher once Reagan was in the White House because he believed he was fighting uh, kind of the last stand for liberalism, for the great society, for the New Deal against Reagan. And so in the House, he wanted Democrats to, to have as much power as possible. He also wasn't someone who thought about how his actions might look in the media uh, although it was never proven he violated any ethics laws or laws, um, he did things that just didn't sit well when you read about them. The kind of shady relationships with real estate developers in his district. And he sold a book of speeches in bulk whenever he spoke in front of a group. Um, and finally, he was someone who was just out of touch with where politics was going. He was a real old school Democrat, old school politician. And he didn't understand what Gingrich was up to. He didn't understand how cable media, for example, was working and how investigative journalism really could have a pretty big bite by the 1980s. And so on all three grounds, when he becomes speaker in 87, Gingrich is basically licking his chops and he goes full throttle, uh, calling him the most corrupt speaker in American history, which is a pretty ludicrous accusation. But boy, did Gingrich make it stick. Yeah, absolutely. In a way, these two guys are, I don't know, this is the best way to put it when we're talking about Jim Wright and Newt Gingrich. They're almost kind of kindred spirits in the way that they both have more of a cutthroat approach to politics, which is very different than the dynamic we had during most of the 1980s when we had the Democratic Speaker Tip O'Neill and the Republican Minority Leader Robert Michael with their dynamic, which was more, hey, let's cooperate together, let's talk about the issues and try to work together on legislation, where the dynamic was much, much different with Newt Gingrich and Jim Wright. And and Gingrich was very explicit about that. I, I have in the book uh, memos that he wrote to other Republicans where he says, he, he says in no uncertain terms, forget about ideas like bipartisanship, forget about ideas like civility. All that means is the status quo. All that means is Republicans will continue to be out of power. So we have to abandon those ideas. We have to abandon those norms. And he writes Bob Michael several times saying you have to teach younger Republicans to be much more aggressive and much more confrontational and basically not be willing to engage with Democrats other than to fight them. So it's an entirely new mindset. And it's not that partisanship didn't exist before, but Gingrich said partisanship comes above all else, above all else. It's always the first principle Republicans had to think of. And uh, that was a big step. And in, in 87, 88, culminating in 89, he brings down the Speaker of the House who resigns in May. Jim Wright resigns. And it's the first time a Speaker had done that. And it legitimates what Gingrich was arguing, at least in the minds of Republicans. Yeah, and this was almost where we could really mark a big shift in the Republican Party, where we have that triumph of the style of Newt Gingrich, as you're talking about being all about partisanship and doing whatever it takes to win, kind of triumphing over that style of Bob Michael, who was more about working together and working with the Democrats on issues. This really seems like a big shift in 20th century American politics. Exactly. And um, it, it, it's not simply that the speaker falls and that Gingrich is successful, uh, but Gingrich becomes part of the leadership because of what he's doing to write, because of his success. 
the Republicans vote to make him the House Minority Whip, which sounds like a technical term, but it's actually part of the leadership. And this is Gingrich's path to power. And, you know, starting in 1989, once that is legitimated, uh, I argue that Republicans take on this vision of, of political strategy where uh, in terms of character destruction, it's just the norm of your opponents. And B, every institution, every norm, every procedure is useful for partisan politics. Nothing can uh, overcome that calculus, even the needs of governing, even the needs of preserving the institution. And that was part one of my interview with author Julian Zelizer. Coming up in part two of the interview on the other side of the break, we'll continue talking about the rise of Newt Gingrich, especially as we get into the 80s and 90s. That's up next here on FYI Politics. We're back on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. Let's get into part two of my conversation with author Julian Zelizer, as he recently wrote a book titled Burning Down the House, talking about Newt Gingrich and how his rise in politics is somewhat similar to what we've seen with Donald Trump. So let's get back to the interview right now. So if we fast forward to 1994, that's when Newt Gingrich finally accomplishes what I would call his life goal of the Republicans becoming the majority. As the Republicans do win a majority in the 1994 midterm elections, Newt Gingrich is elected as Speaker of the House, which is another big goal of his throughout his life. And a lot of historians, you know, cite him as the guy who really led to a big polarization of American politics, where he used words like, pathetic, radical, selfish, shame, sick, traitors to describe his opponents. And as you mentioned earlier, he would question the patriotism of his Democratic opponents. Now, I want to get a little deeper on this because was he doing this just as a way to try to get to the majority or did he actually believe these things? Because if we go back to the 70s, his goal was to become or was to have the Republicans gain the majority. And as he viewed it, this was kind of the only way they could do it, which was just tearing down the Democrats. So I don't know. I've, I was kind of thinking about that question. Did he actually believe that his opponents were unpatriotic? Were they greedy? Did they lie? Or was this just a means to finally accomplish that life goal of having a Republican majority? I think it's the latter. I mean, he what look, he was a conservative by the 80s and he agreed on general principles like cutting taxes and deregulation or a stronger defense. But a lot of what he does is political theater, and he's aware of that. He's not talking necessarily to Republicans about this is what you need to think about the Democrats. He's saying this is what you need to say, because we have to frame this debate in a particular way. And the one part of Gingrich's life that goes against the notion he really felt this way or cared this way is he himself was always facing major ethical problems. Uh, in the story I tell, his his principal attack against the speaker is that he sold these books in bulk, and that was unethical, he argued. Uh, and at the time he was making this attack, he himself was under investigation, and this was reported in the media, for selling his own book in unethical ways. And And this is a story we see again and again in his life. So it suggests that his concern for ethics really was kind of thin. Uh, and a lot of the ways in which uh, he speaks about his opponents and charges his opponents, it's about politics. He is a political strategist more than a big ideas person. 
even though he likes to present himself as the latter. And it was about obtaining power for the party and for himself. Yeah, I don't know if you saw the movie Vice that was kind of the biopic about Dick Cheney that starred uh, Christian Bale, among others. And one of the scenes I specifically remember in that movie was when Christian Bale's character of Dick Cheney asks Donald Rumsfeld, I think like in the 70s, well, what is it we believe as a Republican Party? And Donald Rumsfeld just walks away and starts laughing and doesn't answer the question. And that seems very similar to Newt Gingrich, where it's not so much necessarily what we believe or what our stances are on the issues. It's more about, well, just making sure we get power. I think that's true. And it's, you know, the the hard thing with Gingrich is if you followed him in his career, Gingrich, who had been a professor of history actually for a little bit and had a PhD, likes to present himself as the big ideas person. And he likes to speak about uh, big picture uh, points of view about politics but even that, in many ways, really is, is part of a strategy of how he presents himself. I just think, looking back at his career, it's much more like that character in Vice. It's much more about the partisan power grab. It's much more about that element of politics. And that, in the end, in my mind, uh, was his biggest contribution, which, which many people won't look back to in a good way. Uh, but that's really what he brought to the table for American conservatism. Yeah, and drawing parallels to what we're seeing today with Donald Trump in the office of the presidency, at least in my view, they're kind of similar in that sense, where I don't buy for a second that Donald Trump is really a conservative at all. He was just someone there that was there to tear down the establishment and change Washington, which is very similar to what Newt Gingrich tried to do in the 1980s, in the 1990s with the Republican Party. And <laughs> there seems to be a lot of parallels between those two with how they operate. Yeah, and, and it makes sense to me. I, I often say that uh, Donald Trump really needs to be understood as a product of the modern Republican Party rather than its cause. And I think uh, he, in the last decade, Donald Trump has been watching the Republican Party, uh, literally watching them on Fox News, uh, or just watching them through prominent figures like Newt Gingrich. And I think he is well aware uh, of, of the party that Gingrich created. And so he's remarkably comfortable doing what he likes to do in terms of what he says on his Twitter feed, what he says at his rallies, the way he takes uh, every part of the executive branch, including the Department of Justice, and just uses it to his advantage. He knows at some level that this party is fine with that. Um, and, and so I think that connection is more than him just modeling himself after Gingrich. He's literally part of a party that Gingrich created, and that's exactly how you explain why this Trump presidency came to be and why, even with everything he does, Republican support remains incredibly strong for him. A couple more questions for you here, Julian, before we have to wrap things up and to even draw more parallels. I mean, both Gingrich and Trump were just masters at playing the media. I mean, going back, we're certainly aware of how Trump is a master of the media, but if we even look back at Newt Gingrich with how he was revolutionary and how he even utilized something like C-SPAN in the 1980s or how he went on talk radio several times back in the 80s or would make cable television appearances. He was very much like Trump, very good at knowing how to play the media and to get attention towards what he was fighting for. No, it's exactly right. And, and a lot of people who've been reading the book think I wrote it 
kind of with Trump in mind, which I really didn't. Uh, I had finished most of this before Trump became president. Oh, really? <laughs> and there's that. Yeah. And there's elements like that. I mean, Gingrich understood. He, he always said the media loves confrontation and conflict. He said, you have to feed them with this. You have to say provocative things and they can't resist making that the focus of the attention. And that's much of Gingrich's early career. That's how he became the person he was. He threw into the cable news mix. He threw into the newspaper mix statements and controversy that was just incredible subject matter for people to cover. And by doing that, he shaped the conversation to things he wanted to speak about rather than his opponents. He used to say, that you have to give the press more Indiana Jones than Philharmonic, meaning more of a thriller than kind of uh, classic music. And, and he was right in many ways. And I think that secret sauce is something that Donald Trump instinctively understands and replicates every day. And as we look at the downfall of Newt Gingrich when he, of course, lost his speakership and then eventually resigned from Congress, to me that almost seemed like it was the case where you had the dog that was chasing the car for so many years, so many decades, all of a sudden, 1994, the dog finally catches the car. That would be when Republicans gain the majority and he becomes speaker. It almost kind of becomes the case, well, when the dog catches the car, kind of now what? And that, again, drawing parallels to what we're seeing with Donald Trump, it kind of seems similar in that sense where they have this lifelong goal, especially with Newt Gingrich, he finally accomplishes it. And then, well, now what? Because I kind of get the sense reading through that Gingrich almost enjoyed the chase more than actually winning in the end and winning that speakership. Yeah, that's a good point. And I I think there's something to that. Uh, I think he was more comfortable being the outsider at some level or at least being in that position than being the one with power. His own personal problems and failures from his own personal uh, relationships that he had with different women to his own ethics problems also ultimately helped bring him down in Shakespearean fashion. Um, and also, look, he created a world where everyone was subject to be brought down. No leader was totally protected. And so it makes sense that uh, once he's speaker, he would be more vulnerable than speakers had been two or three decades ago. He made sure that was the case. Uh, so I think all of that came together, um, and his downfall was very swift. He was in, he was only speaker uh, for a little over three years. Well, really recommend you check out this book again. It's called Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and the Rise of a New Republican Party by Julian Zelizer, who we're speaking with right now. Really, again, check it out, and you can find that book again. Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and the Rise of a New Republican Party. You can find that book wherever books are sold. Julian, really appreciate the time today and this uh, putting me in touch with this really fascinating book. Thanks again for the time. Thanks so much for having me. And before I go, I want to remind you about a special promotion that we have going right now where you can get an official AM950 calendar. It's a really cool calendar that features some photos that Matt McNeil took throughout the year on his nature hikes and also has some important dates in progressive history and our own history here at AM950 Radio. Now, the way you get that calendar is by making a membership donation to us. That can be a one-time $50 donation or a continuing 
monthly $25 donation. Learn more about that at am950radio.com. If you really want these 2021 calendars, they are cool looking. So again, visit am950radio.com for more details. Matt McNeil is coming up next. We'll be right back. 